So I have to admit that I'm a, a little bit uncomfortable preaching on this passage that we have for today. I say that a lot. Um, but, you know, leaning into the discomfort. We are comfortable with being uncomfortable here at Embrace. That is one of our values, if you remember. Um, it's actually, it's not necessarily because, like, I don't like this passage. It's really because, like, it's so important, I believe. It's one of those passages that... Um, really inspires me in my work, Um, it challenges me in my daily life, and it really reminds me of what matters the most. And it's so important to me um, that I'm afraid I won't do it justice, so my prayer is that God will help us to see um, Him this morning, and, and that we would be able to really experience God through this parable in Matthew. It's the last parable in Matthew, and this is like really the last thing that happens before kind of the the last days of Jesus um, move forward. And so it's called the parable of the sheep and goats. And some of you have probably heard this one before. Um, but I'm going to read it for you. And then we'll, we'll say a few things about it this morning. And hopefully through our reflections we can be challenged a little bit this morning to be more like Jesus. So it's from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. It's a little bit different than some parables. It's kind of more like an analogy with an explanation. Um, It's not like a big, long story, but uh, it's uh, really, really important. So here's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with them, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous then will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So we've had a few parables the last few weeks uh, talk about judgment, and uh, we're not going to get into all the ins and outs of judgment today, 
But I do want to remind you that the judge, the one who is going to judge at the end is Jesus, okay? And the scriptures teach us that. And uh, I, I think Jesus will be a good judge. You know, I've had to interact with court system over the last few years different ways, and I've had to show up for others in court, and sometimes you have good judges, and sometimes you have bad judges. And there are some bad judges out there in our world. Jesus is even better than the best judge we'll find here. And so that's a, a good encouragement to me as I think about the final days, that God, who is full of love for us, and Jesus, who was willing to lay down his life for us, will be the one who judges at the end. So in these verses, Jesus says that the Son of Man will eventually come in all His glory. And when He talks about the Son of Man, it's a term Jesus used that He borrowed from the Hebrew Scriptures, and He's using it to refer to Himself. And so He says that when He returns, because He's going to go away and eventually He will return, and we're waiting for that now. He says the angels will all be with Him. There will be a great celebration of the coming of the King. Today is Christ the King Sunday, and we're celebrating the coming of the King. And this is what it's talking about. The King will come and sit on His throne, and one of His tasks as King, He says at the end, will be to separate the people. Now He says, all the nations will be gathered. The way I interpret this is that all of the people, everyone, will be gathered. So imagine this massive multitude of people, all will be gathered And He is going to separate them. Jesus compares the separation to the way a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He says the sheep will go on the right and the goats will go on the left. Two groups will be created from the larger group. And so here is the image. All of the people are gathered before the king. And all the people are separated into two groups. This is one image. Jesus gives us about the final judgment. He gives lots of other images about the final judgment. Keep in mind, it's also a parable. It's not meant to communicate all the specifics of what it will look like. It's meant to provoke us and challenge us into living differently in the world right now. But it does talk about judgment. So I think we have to lean into that and know that there's many places throughout the Gospels where Jesus talks about some kind of judgment at the end of times. So Jesus begins the judging, and to the ones on the right, he calls them blessed and righteous. And he says to them, you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You invited me in when I was a stranger. You clothed me when I was naked. You looked after me when I was sick. You even went and visited me when I was in prison. Now the righteous, he says, in this story are a bit confused. And they're like, huh? Like, Jesus, when did we ever see you? In these situations, when did we ever do any of these things for you? And Jesus said, well, whenever you did any of these things for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, in fact, you did it for him, he says. And then he speaks to the ones on the left. I'm doing left and right here doesn't mean you all are cursed on the left of the church. uh... He speaks to the ones on the left and to them... He called them cursed, and he punishes them. And he tells them that you did not care for him when he was hungry and thirsty, a stranger, sick, or in prison. And they say, Jesus, when did we ever see you in need like this? They're probably thinking, of course we would have helped the king if the king was in need, right? 
And he says to them, well, when you did not care for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine in my kingdom, therefore, you did not care for me. So one group of the people took care of the least of these and the others did not. As I was studying this passage a few years ago, I encountered something that really surprised me. I'd never, never encountered this. I googled Mother Teresa the least of these because I knew Mother Teresa loved this passage and I was interested to know what she might have said about this particular passage. Mother Teresa the least of these. I knew Matthew 25 was an inspiration to her. Now I want to share with you some of the articles that popped up when I googled this. The first article that popped up, who are the least of these? Scholars say Mother Teresa and others may be wrong. Very first article. The second article, you probably don't know about the least of these. The fourth article, the least of these are not the poor, but the Christian baker, photographer, and florist. That's an interesting one right there. The eighth article, where did the poor go? Who are the least of these in the Gospel of Matthew? The tenth article, the least of these, Meals on Wheels, the Trump budget, and the struggle over Matthew 25.40. The twelfth article, scholars say the least of these may not be the poor. The seventeenth article, Mother Teresa said we find Jesus in the poor. Was she right? Rick just said, absolutely. <laughs> article after article, after article, arguing that the least of these isn't actually talking about the poor. The argument as the, is that this passage isn't really about how we treat the poor. And many of these scholars would say that Jesus talked about how to treat the poor in other places, but not here. That's what these articles and these folks are saying. And I'm thinking, huh, like... That's not what I thought. I've always looked at this, that these are talking about the poor, these verses. The phrase, least of these, raises some questions for many scholars. What does Jesus mean when he says, the least of these? What is he talking about? What does that mean? It's not a phrase we use very often. There are basically two prevailing views about what he's talking about. The most popular view is that the least of these refers generally to the poor, to the suffering, to the struggling. And so when we say the least of these, we're saying the ones that have kind of been pushed to the bottom, that are struggling and suffering and have the least amount of power or, or just the uh, health in their lives. And so if that's the case, then, then Jesus is saying that everyone will be judged based on how they treat the poor. Now the second view, which is becoming more popular among scholars, is that the least of these is only referring to poor Christians. And so essentially Jesus would be saying, not how you treat all of the poor, but how you treat my followers matters. So if you're kind to my followers, then you're being kind to me. If you mistreat my followers, then you mistreat me. So in this view, what it's saying is that non-Christians, people who aren't followers of Jesus, will be judged based on how they treat Christians. Now this is indeed an easier interpretation for Christians because in this view, Jesus isn't really talking to us. He's talking to all the people out there and saying, well, if you mess with my people, then you mess with me, right? And you're going to be judged for that. That's, that's 
like an easier one for us to think about. You're like, well, Jesus is going to enact judgment on all, all those people out there who mistreat us. We don't have time to dissect the arguments on both sides. But I will say that I have some concerns with the second view. Because it seems that some scholars are trying to take the edge off this passage. And we do this about other sections of Scripture. Go, go read some scholarly work on some of the accounts about money and wealth in the Gospels. And you will see lots of interpretive uh, creativity in how they talk about these passages, about redistribution of wealth and about sharing our resources with the poor. And I worry that maybe this is going in a similar direction. This passage is edgy. It's challenging. It's provoking. To, to some people, it's just too much. It's hard to accept that we will be judged based on how we treat the poor. Some read this passage and think, you know, like I thought we were all saved by grace. Like, I thought it didn't matter what we do in this life. I thought it was about believing in Jesus. Jesus couldn't have meant that we will be judged based on how we care for the poor because I'm saved by grace alone, right? People are uncomfortable with the idea of judgment. I understand. I am as well. And we're definitely uncomfortable with the idea that we will be judged by how we treat the poorest people among us. I think the main reason we're uncomfortable with that part is that more often than not, we don't treat the poor very well. People tend to ignore the poor, humiliate the naked, reject the stranger, eat too much while others starve, label prisoners as criminals, and they deserve to be in chains. There aren't a lot of folks doing the things that Jesus describes in these verses, and so of course there are people out there in my mind who are trying to argue that Jesus didn't actually mean this. That he didn't mean we're going to be judged by the way we treat the poor. I'm concerned by interpretations of Scripture that soften the edges to appeal to the comfortable. We shouldn't be shocked by Jesus' words, though. I think he's making it clear that the way we treat people at the bottom, the poor, the struggling, the sick, the immigrant, it all matters. And it really, really matters. And this is so consistent with Jesus' life and his teaching and his message. Think about the way Jesus lived his life. He intentionally sought out and spent time with people who were pushed to the bottom. The poor were at the center of his life and his ministry. He began his ministry in the, the rural areas up in Galilee among some of the poorest Jews in that area. These are the disciples that he called. These are lots of the folks who were there with him when he was preaching. And these were folks that were often pushed to the outside, but Jesus brought them to the center of his life and ministry. You can go into the Old Testament, look at some of the Old Testament laws about safety nets that were set up for the poor and the widow and the orphan. There were laws in the books about how we treated the stranger. There's a recurring message all throughout the Bible that says the way we treat people, especially the poor and the vulnerable, matters. When the prophets in the Old Testament got really angry, and they got angry sometimes, it was because, often, because the people of Israel, the Israelites, were mistreating the most vulnerable among them. They were ignoring those who were suffering, and the prophets got really upset about that. We shouldn't be shocked that Jesus would say that when we care for the least of these, we actually care for him. Because he identified so closely with the poor 
and the struggling among you. One of the striking features, I think, of this passage is that the righteous people, he says the ones on the right, the sheep, they're surprised when he tells them that their love for the poor was in fact love for him. Now, I'm not surprised that they were surprised. Because when you think about a king sitting on a throne, how many kings truly love the poor? How many kings throughout history have truly loved the poor and identified with the poor and stood in solidarity with those who suffered? Very rarely. Think about the leaders of our day today. They're usually very detached and very apart from those who suffer. But Jesus is saying, I'm so close to these folks that when you love them, you're actually loving me because I stand with them and I live my life among them and I actually live in them. Jesus is showing us that he is a different kind of king. It's Christ the King Sunday today. And Jesus is nothing like any kings that we've ever seen in this world. Jesus is a king that identifies with the poor, the abandoned, the oppressed, and the marginalized. And so what does this mean for us? Well, I'm going to say a few words about this, but first, just let's keep it real simple. We ought to be like Jesus And we ought to also identify and love and accompany the poor and the abandoned and the oppressed and the marginalized. It's plain as day to me here, but we we too often we fail at it. I've heard some I've heard it described like this, and I just love this image. It says we need to leave behind the house of fear where suspicion and hatred and violence and war, where those things rule. And many of us live in houses of fear, don't we? Fear of the other, fear of the hungry, fear of the thirsty. We're afraid of the naked and the stranger and the prisoner. We need to leave the house of fear and we need to enter the house of love. And in the house of love, that's where reconciliation and healing and peace can reign. And which house do we want to live a part of? When Jesus described the final judgment, you know, he could have said some other things. Uh, I love From the 4th century, John Chrysostom, he said some really provoking and challenging things about how we love and care for those at the bottom. But I love what he says here. He says, Jesus could have said, come to me, you blessed, because you were of sound mind, because you led a virginal or a pure life, because you assumed an angelic way of life. However, he remained silent regarding these, not because they are unworthy of remembrance, but because they are secondary to beneficence. And essentially what he's saying there is Jesus didn't say those things. He didn't talk about following all the rules and living this pure and blameless life, not because they aren't important, but because they aren't as important as showing love and compassion. To be obedient to Jesus is first and foremost about loving others. Jesus even says that's how we will be judged. We can go back just a few weeks ago when Jesus summed up all the commandments, all the scriptures, all the teaching coming from the Hebrew scriptures. He said you can sum it up in two. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Are we people who love others? Now, I don't think it's like another thing where we need to think about, well, did I do X amount of good deeds for someone, and is that going to get me in this right place? I don't, I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about our identity here. Are you a person who is characterized by love and compassion and mercy? The Protestant Reformation, if you know much about it, Martin Luther 
did a lot of really good things. The Catholic Church needed some reforms. It needed some, some help because much of it had strayed from the essence of the gospel. And Martin Luther was right, I think, in emphasizing the gift of salvation. It is a free gift. We cannot earn salvation. No matter how hard I try, I cannot save myself. Grace is needed. I need God to save me. And I have faith in God's ability to bring salvation, not my own ability. However, I think people have taken this too far. People have put faith and good work up against each other. And I see this as very unhelpful. This is not my understanding of the gospel. The scriptures teach us. James, who wrote the book of James, likely Jesus' own brother, said that faith without works is dead. Good work is the evidence that we have a robust faith in God. Salvation, I believe, is a free gift given to us by God. We cannot earn it. We cannot achieve it. It is in God's hands. And we need to trust in that and have faith in God. However, the evidence that we have faith is that we live lives of love and that we show mercy and compassion to others. Jesus had no problem calling people to have faith and believe, but he also expected them to be obedient to the demands of the gospel. This guy, Snod, uh, Kleins Snodgrass, writes this, and a brilliant New Testament scholar wrote about the parables, but he said, a person cannot be a follower of Jesus and be void of compassion, which is at the heart of his gospel. Why have so many Christians thought we could have grace without the demand? A person is not a disciple of Christ on the basis of ancestry, ritual act, or liturgical confession. One is a disciple in actually following Jesus' compassion and obedience to the will of the Father. This is not a works righteousness. Acts of mercy are not done as a means to an end, but as expressions of knowledge of God's love. If we don't love others, then Scripture teaches we can't claim to have faith in God. Go read 1 Corinthians 13 or go read the whole book of 1 John. And here's the beautiful thing about all this. I think, as Rick said, Mother Teresa was right. I think that was Rick who said absolutely. Mother Teresa was right that we do find Jesus in the poor. When you show love and compassion to another human who is struggling, I believe you meet Jesus in that person. I've encountered the, the work and the teachings of a pastor, a Palestinian Christian in the West Bank in Bethlehem. His name's Munther Isaac. And he's a Palestinian Christian pastor. And he's been wondering where God is in the midst of all the devastation in Gaza. And he had a profound response that I'm still trying to, to really just meditate on. But he said, where is God in war? God is under the rubble. God is not in either of the war planes or he's not firing the missiles from either side. Jesus is under the rubble with those who are suffering. Jesus articulated a profound spirituality that says God is present most among those who suffer the most. <laughs> he argues that we meet God in acts of love and solidarity with those who suffer the most. And so in my mind, if we can meet Jesus and those who suffer, then part of our spiritual journey must be showing compassion and love for the poor. And so if you feel far from God or your spiritual life is suffering and you don't feel connected to the Spirit, 
Here are some suggestions on how you can grow closer. Feed the hungry. Give the thirsty a drink. Welcome the strangers and the foreigners. Clothe the naked and restore dignity. Take care of the sick. Visit folks in prison. Henry Nouwen says that Jesus comes to us in the poor, the sick, the dying, the prisoners, the lonely, the disabled, the rejected. And there we meet him. And there the door to God's house is open for us. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to be close to Jesus, then doing these things will help you become closer to Jesus. We've had some folks at our church who have gotten plugged in on Monday nights at the gathering. And what they found is they found Jesus on Monday nights through folks who are hungry who come through our doors, folks who are thirsty coming through our doors, folks who are cold and need shelter coming through our doors, searching for love and community. And what happens is we all experience something profound where physical needs are met and spiritual needs are met, and we all meet Jesus around those tables. So I encourage you to walk through the door of God's house, this house of love, to leave the house of fear, and enter into the house of love where Jesus is the head of that house. And in that house, I believe that, that transformation can happen, that reconciliation can happen, healing can happen, and that I believe that's the answer to, to the pain and suffering that we're experiencing around us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.